0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us for our March 2021 Night of Worship. We're so glad that you could join us today as we just jump into the study that we've been going through all semester called Makings of a Messiah. And what we've been doing this semester, we're looking at 15 different scenes from Jesus's life and just noticing how he treats people, uh, how he actually ended up changing the world. Uh, from all of these different interactions that he had with people ultimately dying on the cross and raising from the dead. And we, so we just invite you tonight to join us. Whether you haven't caught anything that we've done or you've been to all the life groups we've had so far, uh, you are welcome and we're so excited that you're here. And I'm really excited for you to hear uh, the student testimonies that are com- coming up here in a little bit. And so we're going to be studying uh, tonight a woman who was caught in adultery and how she was devalued and she was shamed and Jesus stood up for her and called her to a new life. So we're really excited about that. I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. God, thank you so much for tonight that we can come. We can worship you together. We can focus on uh, the life of our Savior and how he treated people and how he set them free, how he called them to a new life. God, would you speak clearly to us uh, in the scripture, in the stories, everything that we do, God, that we could honor and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, Myra is going to just share her story from her family that's so powerful. I'm really excited for you to hear what God's laid on her heart to share for tonight.
1: When I was in eighth grade, uh, my family and I went down to Destin, Florida for a spring break. And we were just driving down there, and it was really late at night. It was around like 10 o'clock, I think. Um, And it started raining really hard, and then my mom got a uh, flash flood warning on her phone. And then just a few seconds later, we hit seven feet of water, and um, we started spinning, and then uh, we got hit by a semi-truck. And I just remember it was one of those things where you're sitting there and it feels like a movie, and my dad screamed out, Jesus, save us. And in that very second, our car stopped. It's like one of those moments in my life that just gives me goosebumps um, every time I think about it. But... Um, Our car lit came to a complete halt on the side of the interstate, and uh, I looked back and our belongings and everything were all over the interstate, soaking wet from the rain and the storm, um, getting run over. Um, And right after that, we were taken to a hospital in Pulaski, Tennessee, which is where we got in the accident. I think the population of the town was around 2,000 and the hospital looked like an 1800 school building. Um, But aside from the fact, um, we were there together and we survived the accident with scrapes and bruises and no major injuries, which was a miracle. Um, But we were there and we ended up having to spend the night at the hotel or the hospital because all the hotels were full due to mule day. That's how small the town was. Um, but my family of six survived. We pushed two of the little hospital twin beds together and my dad, my sister and I slept on that one. And then my mom and my two other sisters slept on the queen size bed. Um, they were lucky. My dad played his rain music all throughout the night. So that was a joy. And, um, but (laughs) besides the point, um, the day after the accident, we went to the wreckage site, um where our car was totaled and the guy um, that, you know, had brought the car to the site said, um, he kind of looked at us and he goes, you know, most people don't survive incidents like this. And I think that's really when it clicked because I mean, everything had happened so fast and you're just kind of living in the moment and then you realize we walked away from something that could have been deadly with scrapes and bruises that went away within a matter of days. Um, and I don't think that was a coincidence. I think that was God. Um, but aside from that, I really think, you know, why did God save me? You know, like, why did he choose to save my family? And because, like, the reality is all sin is equal and, you know, I didn't deserve to get saved more than anybody else who had ever gotten in a deadly car accident like that. Um... But, you know, I think that meant that, you know, God wasn't done with me and he's not done, you know, with anybody else, too. Um, overall, really, the entire incident kind of opened my eyes to the amazing glory of God. Um, and secondly, to the fact that, you know, although I'm not perfect, God was there for me and he stood for me um, and my family, despite all of the odds being against us, Um and, you know, anytime I slip into moments of doubt or I'm struggling with trials or tribulations, um, I remember how God was with me in that incident and how he stood by my side. Um, and, you know, I think this concept of Jesus always being there for us, no matter what, is really important and was really shown throughout my story and is something I always cling to um, and remember. And so maybe you have a time in your life where, um, Or a story similar to mine where you felt like God was there and he really stepped in. Or maybe you don't. Um, Either way, I think that this message is for you.
2: So I'll be reading from John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8 through 2. And the scripture says, Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to Mount of Olives. At the dawn the appeared again in the temple's courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them.
0: Okay, so the first part of our scripture that Patrick so graciously read for us, thank you, Patrick, for reading that scripture, uh, we see uh, Jesus as the teacher. And this passage we've chosen for our message invokes more questions than it gives answers. That's how the Bible usually works. You think you're going to get it mastered, you're going to get it figured out. And you get into it and you realize it's a lot deeper and a lot richer than we at first thought. And so this section is not included in most of the early Greek manuscripts that comprise the New Testament. And maybe you didn't know this, maybe you did already, maybe this is a review, but the New Testament is made up of over 5,800 early Greek manuscripts. And so some of those manuscripts are older and some of them aren't as old. And so this is one of those stories that, that probably... Um, It wasn't in the earlier manuscripts, and it may not have been included in the original Gospel of John even, but historically, we can be pretty confident that it probably happened. Um, We know that most Bible scholars believe it doesn't belong here in John, but they don't really know where it belongs. And so we don't really have any historical context of what's happening. Uh, However, it might fit well in the scene in John 12, where Jesus is in a place called Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, which was on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, which is where the scripture says the context is kind of set. All that to say is that Jesus came again early in the morning to the temple. And all the people surrounded him and he sat down and he began to teach the people. And I, I wonder if if his teaching was focused about what they were about to encounter. Maybe he was talking about uh, condemning one another or judging one another. We don't really know exactly what Jesus was teaching, but he was teaching Uh, as he's about to encounter this woman and regardless we just need to remember as we set the scene for the scripture that Jesus is not in private he's not in some you know tucked away spot in a religious uh, house he is in public he is in the the public eye everyone is seeing what is happening and he is teaching these people who are listening a new way to live and there is no greater teacher than Jesus. And as we'll see later, we can't really stop here. We can't just say Jesus was a great teacher. There's lots of religions that say that. But this is why all of us would do well to begin our day, just like these people did, sitting at Jesus' feet, ready to listen. And so I hope that you're going to do that today. I hope you're going to sit at Jesus' feet with us all and and just learn from him and see how he interacts And and, you know, treats people. And so let's jump right into the next part of our passage. Myra is going to read that for us.
1: Okay. I'll be reading John eight, three through eight. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery In the law. Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground.
0: Thank you, Myra, so much for reading that scripture. Uh, The first section we talked about Jesus as the teacher. We're, We're sitting at his feet at this scene that we're painting. And now we're going to be talking about Jesus the Scribbler. Uh, We see also in the scripture that we see the experts, the supposed experts, enter the scene. We have the Pharisees and the scribes. And the scribes were the experts in the intricacies of the Hebrew text, the Old Testament. And the Pharisees were the experts in the teaching of the Old Testament. And in order to convict anyone of a capital offense like this, uh, being able to kill someone for what they had done, The Old Testament required witnesses to throw the first stone. You can look that up in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. I was actually just reading about this in Leviticus as well. It's all the way through the the Old Testament. Witnesses were required to convict someone of a capital crime like this. And so this means that one of them, one of these experts, one of these scribes or Pharisees probably was there to witness the the act of adultery, which is very much disturbing when we think about that. But the Romans, they still had to sign off on capital punishment in Israel and rarely granted it for matters like this one. And so this was mostly just a test in a theological debate that the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to bait Jesus into. And they're using this woman in the process. I love this quote from Colin Cruz. It's so good in his commentary. They limited the application of the law by saying that it applied to such women... When in fact, the law applied to both the adulterers and the adulterous, adulteresses. And so what Jesus, he was he was probably surprised at what they were doing because, it, of course, it takes two to commit adultery. But only the woman is brought before Jesus. And so... The big question is, what was Jesus riding on the ground in this passage? and ultimately we have no idea. it could have been that he was saying that these accusers were also guilty of adultery. I thought the following uh, comment from uh, Augustine was really interesting when it referred to jeremiah 13, seventeen three talking about riding on the ground. Augustine said this, he wrote with his finger on the ground as if indicating that the names of the people like these men were written in the earth, not in heaven, which is where he told his disciples they should rejoice that their names were written. There are many options um, as to what Jesus was writing on the ground. Ultimately, no one knows, but it is kind of interesting to kind of explore what Jesus was writing. Um, but what we need to remember is that Jesus had his eyes not on these experts trying to trip him up. He had his eyes on helping this woman who stood before all of them, shamed and devalued. His, what, he wasn't on earth to play by these scribes and these Pharisees' rules. Jesus is not here to adhere and adjust to us. He wants us to adjust to him. And Jesus then drops one sentence that shuts these experts up. He says, let him who is without sin be the first to cast the stone. So legally, according to the Hebrew scriptures, um, they could do this as witnesses. You know, they could throw these stones according to the Old Testament because they saw it happen. Now they would probably get in trouble with the Romans. But number one, they wouldn't want to face the Romans. And number two, they knew that they had also sinned. And Jesus goes back again for a second time starts scribbling on the ground uh, which helps him keep his attention on what matters most to him in the scene not these experts not the theological debate not winning an argument but keeps the attention on this woman who was desperately in need of a defender. So right now uh, Patrick's going to read the rest of our scripture from John chapter 8 verses 9 through 11.
2: So John chapter 8, verse 9 through 11, in the scripture says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin.
0: Thanks, Patrick, for finishing out our scripture uh, this last section is the one that really gets our attention and what happens. And, and so we have Jesus the teacher, then Jesus the scribbler, and now in this last section we have Jesus the defender. And walking away from the scene, the religious leaders, what they're doing is they're admitting that they were no better than this woman. They had used her as a prop in order to trap Jesus, but now he he had used just one sentence to send them scattering. Jesus would be the only one who could have rightfully thrown a stone at this woman because you know he had not sinned uh, in his life. And yet he was the one that was going to step in and defend her. And so Jesus chose not to condemn her, uh, but he knew that inflicting further shame on her, it wouldn't be helpful. And I think this is kind of where we get, and the immediate application is just so obvious for us as Christians. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but we think that if, I, I think a lot of times we think, well, my job isn't to judge or to condemn anyone, and so we and we think if we disagree with someone's lifestyle, then we are condemning them. But Jesus didn't think this way. He didn't think that this was the case with this woman or with anybody that he met, whether it was Zacchaeus or Matthew or any other notorious sinner that he had come across in his earthly ministry. Uh, he could stand with this woman desiring her to be treated with dignity and respect with all the rights and privileges that everyone else had, while at the same time calling her to live a new life. And while many people in our culture and even in our churches, even in our campus ministries at IUPUI and across the uh, United States and around the world, we see this as an impossibility. How am I going to defend someone and at the same time call them to live a different lifestyle or invite them to live a different lifestyle is a better way to put that? Jesus saw this, this, this idea of this tension between these two as being vital to his mission as the Messiah to teach us more about how we should treat each other. And I think there, there's an old saying that among Christians that goes like this, love the sinner and hate the sin. And it seems that the generation maybe before uh, our college students today uh, were really, really good at um, you know, hating the sin and not not so great about loving the sinner, maybe the way that Jesus did. And I think probably in today's culture, uh, with the students, with you guys, I think the big issue sometimes is we're really good at loving the sinner, uh, being there for them, we're not really great at hating the sin. And I know there's varying people that struggle with varying aspects of that. Um, But it's really fascinating to think about. And I think last week we saw in our scripture, we saw Jesus heal a man at the pool of Bethesda. And afterward, we saw him say something similar, like he said to this woman when he said, go and sin no more. Uh, To that man, he said, go so that something worse will not happen to you. Um, Which kind of takes us off guard when you just change someone's life and heal them when they've been lame. They can't walk for 38 years, but that's what Jesus did. And honestly, the work of defending people and yet still being unafraid to invite them, to call them to a new life is one that will necessitate not our intellect, not uh, trying to figure out the perfect thing to say, uh, not trying to, you know, any of these things that are performance driven. I th- really think that this is an art, a craft that has to come through walking by the Spirit as we see in Galatians 5:16 through 26. So I think that's something we all need to consider today that walking by the Spirit you know letting the holy spirit guide jesus of course was the best at it and we're here to emulate him as we follow him to obey him and so i think that's the only way that we're going to properly balance both you know defending someone and inviting them to live a brand new life
2: hello everyone my name is patrick neble junior and this is my story after reading what the passage and what god has laid on my heart so a couple of sundays ago me and my roommate we went to church i was really enjoying the morning and i got a, i just bought a new suit new shoes new pants everything so i was really you know looking good i like to have a motto if you look good you feel good and so we went to church and then towards the end of church they were doing altar call where people go up and receive prayer from from the prayer warriors and then I went up there and then I asked for a simple prayer and then before I know it they made it into being like slain in the spirit P- people were expecting me to like start jumping everywhere crying and everything speaking in tongues but I didn't do that and in that moment I thought about faking it and I told myself that I'm not going to do that because I feel like I would definitely be lying to myself and not being true to myself so after that Day, I kind of felt bad because I was literally in front of the entire congregation and I kind of felt bad. I felt judged and I kind of felt, you know, ashamed and embarrassed because everybody was expecting me to act a certain way, but I didn't do that. And so when I was driving, when me and my roommate was dragging back to our apartment, I kind of felt depressed and kind of ashamed. And then later that day, we went to a uh, evening service but i didn't do nothing i wasn't praising god worshiping praying anything because honestly after that whole moment after not receiving or being slain in the spirit people might say i just kind of felt hopeless and my whole faith was shot in that process and so i went to bed not praying i even woke up the next day not even praying at all and honestly i just questioned if god really existed after that whole event and so That morning, I went to the gym like I usually do, but it was very emotional for me because I was just crying. And I think I'd even, I went to the gym and I just went back home because I just couldn't do anything. And so after that, I got on with my daily routine. And then towards the afternoon, I texted two of my roommates and one of my other friends. I actually wrote them a suicidal note, three suicidal notes, and told them that I'm not going to be here. Don't mind. Don't even bother looking for me or anything like that and my other, my roommate, which which is my best friend, he called the police and they had to come and get me from the library. And they handcuffed me and they put me in the police car and they took me to Eskenazi uh, Mental Institution. And then after that, that I got settled in. I had to wear a, bl- a green gown. And after just sitting in that whole mental institution, it just made me feel really depressed. I th- that was probably have to be one of the lowest points of my life and I kind of felt really bad and I thought to myself that I wasn't going to make it through the day and I just called it quits from then and so they so it took them six hours for them to come and see me to ask me questions like how I'm feeling how are you doing and stuff like that and I thought I was going to get diagnosed with a mental issue like depression bipolar like one one day I'm happy and I'm go-getter and then the next day I'm sad and depressed so that's what I actually thought and then before the psychiatrist came and talked to me, I actually got a res- couple of calls from my parents, family, friends, childhood friends, and different things. They, call, they basically talked to me say, Patrick, your life matters. Don't let something like that get to you. There's a lot of things that God has for you. If you kill yourself now, you'll basically be leaving us behind, leaving a whole legacy behind. You'll never get to fulfill your potential and stuff like that. And so I thought to myself, like, they're right. And after that day, I shouldn't let, you know, that one moment of not, you know, receiving the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and acting a certain way, get to my feelings like that. And so even during the church, like everyone will judge me because I don't listen to, you know, a certain kind of music. I do listen to gospel, but it's like when I'm worshiping God, you know, during my God times. But most of the day, I like to listen to seven, my 70s souls, 80s, 90s, and stuff like that. And so... After that, when the psychiatrist came and talked to me after six hours later, which was a long time. And they asked me a couple of questions like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And I basically told them the absolute truth. And then I thank God that I wasn't diagnosed with any mental issue. And after just sitting in that mental hospital bed with a camera and like a border TV, because the room was literally empty because they tried to make sure that you're not going to harm yourself with like certain equipment. And it was only like a chair there and uh i thought i was gonna be on suicidal watch for a couple of days but that didn't happen and during that time when it was just myself i felt like i wasn't there alone too i felt like god really came and actually told me who i was as a person told me how valuable i am and how big of an impact i can make onto the community no matter who i am and so after that talking to the psychiatrist i got two hours later They discharged me from the mental hospital and it was freezing cold outside and so I had to walk from Eskenazi back to my apartment for for about a good eight minutes it wasn't so good it was freezing cold after that my hands were numbed and everything and my roommates welcomed me with open arms honestly I was crying just to see them again because I didn't know I was gonna see them and so I basically went to bed just praising God thanking him for saving me because I thought my life didn't matter but to God I do matter so after sharing this message, I just, I felt like to just tell everyone that your life do matter. Mental, mental illness is a real thing and everyone should take it serious. And for everyone who's like struggling with like suicidal thoughts or anything like that, just know that God loves you. Jesus loves you. He God created you with a purpose. You're not here by accident. You're not here just because your mom and dad had a thing going on, but God really created you for a specific purpose. And, I th- and the scripture says in Psalms 139 verse 14, it says, like, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I, th- and I really read that scripture to myself each and every day just to remind myself of who I am and what I'm here on earth to do. And so right now, I thank you for hearing my message. Yes.
0: Man, thank you, Patrick, for sharing uh, that story. I think uh, we all can resonate with that idea of not feeling good enough. Um, like we have to perform a certain way to have God say that we're valuable, and that is not true. Thank you for speaking that truth over us. Fits so well as we head into the application part of our message, thinking about how we can live this passage. Uh, we can take this uh, reality that God is is for us. He's defending us. He's calling us to a new life, and plug it in. Number one is that we need to submit to the teacher. Jesus is the ultimate teacher. Our, our views on morality and how to live this life, though they might be uh, clever, they might sound good, the only only morality, uh, the source of life has to come from one person, and that is God. He is the only one who has, uh, His Son, Jesus Christ, has the way, which is the way, the truth, and the life. And this stance will definitely come into conflict with our culture from time to time for sure. Um But we will never regret standing with this teacher, Jesus. Uh, He is the one who has offered us eternal life. And we can do that. We can stand with him in a respectful way, of course. Um, But the second thing is just not to devalue. Don't devalue. Uh, Everyone on earth is equally valuable in the eyes of God. And this means that no one deserves to be shamed or to make, make them feel like they're worthless or that their life doesn't matter. Uh, because we all, all of our lives matter. We, we matter an, an immeasurably amount to God. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And, um, and I think if you see this, uh, if you see someone devaluing someone else and shaming someone else, uh, wherever you're at, even if you're with a group of friends, make sure you step in and you stop that thing. And you say, hey, stop, this isn't doing any good. Um, We need to remind each other of how valuable we are to God. But the third thing is uh, is the tough thing, (laughs) is to defend someone, to stand up for the oppressed, uh, those who are being mistreated and shamed, but at the same time declare. So we defend yet declare. We are doing people a disservice if we don't have the courage to speak the truth of God into their lives. Uh, Sure, we want to treat everyone with respect and dignity and compassion, but we also want them to live the best life possible. I hope that we care enough about people uh, to enter into this difficult work of loving our neighbor. It is difficult. It is messy. Uh, Sometimes it may not make sense. And How are we dealing with this tension between uh, defending someone and yet inviting them to a brand new life? So I just want us to dream for a little bit. What would happen if we took these three with us everywhere we went? Whether we were in Indianapolis or Fishers or Greenwood, wherever we're at, to the ends of the earth, what if we took these things with us? What if we refused to play the games that the world of the religious experts are playing today? What if we decided to treat everyone the way that they're supposed to be treated? I really believe that we would have the opportunity to reach more people with the message of Jesus, with the gospel, if we live this way that Jesus lived. Uh, you may also think that all this seems like too much. This tension uh, between compassion and holiness is, is ridiculous. There's no way that we could do this. Exactly. God has you right where, you want, where he wants you if he has you in a place of impossibility where you can't do it. Uh, you need to know that we can submit to Jesus and his teaching. We can not devalue those around us. We can refuse to devalue people around us, and we can defend yet declare. And I, I pray that we would see a brand new generation of Jesus followers who are all about compassion and at the same time are all about holiness. I think it really keeps us in check on a lot of different levels. And at the end of every message, we always want to invite you right now to make a decision to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you have never made that decision to become a Christian, you've been kind of on the outskirts looking in. Maybe you grew up in the church and you never did. It's just up in your head and it really hadn't resonated in your heart until tonight. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Uh, it's real simple. Uh, we have a great page on our website, csfiupy.com baptism. It's not just about baptism. The page is all about those initial decisions that we make when we first encounter the love of God through Jesus Christ. And so we encourage you to go to that site, actually respond, uh, send us a DM, uh, drop something in the comments, uh, respond in that way. We would love to follow up with you. We've got a great page on our website for those of you who are new. We would love to connect with you and help you take those next steps in your relationship with Jesus. So let's close out our time with a word of prayer. I do want to thank uh, Myra and Patrick for being willing to be be vulnerable and share their stories with us tonight. It's so, so great to see what God is doing in the midst of students at IUPUI and we have students at Marion University as well. So let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much uh, for your love for us, God. You have defended us uh, in every way. When Jesus went to the cross and died, uh, it wasn't an accident uh, that he came and he, he he gave it all for us so that we could be saved, uh, so we could live new lives. I pray that we wouldn't just take that salvation and be grateful for it, but we would extend that grace and that that, um, that attitude of love to other people. God, help us to find this balance by your Spirit as we walk with you between compassion and holiness. I pray that uh, when we get a chance to discuss this next week in our life groups, Uh, that there would be some real uh, conversation that needs to take place. God, we love you so much. We thank you for loving us uh, the way that you have. And it's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the message. Uh, We'll see you soon.